Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome back to Administrative Static. This is John Vecchione, and I want to talk about a case that just was decided this week uh, on SSI benefits and whether or not Puerto Rico can be denied, the Puerto Rican citizens can be denied that, that supplemental security income, SSI. And we talk a lot about administrative law, but the most administrative law judges, the way it affects most people's lives in this country, are determinations for Social Security, Medicare, and SSI. Um, those are, uh, you know, over 65, you have your, your medical benefits that are, that are a federal program. Um, and then the, and then Social Security since the 1930s has been uh, a, a program that tremendous numbers of Americans rely on. But SSI is different from those. You don't pay into it. It's, it's for people who don't have Social Security and Medicare and are impoverished or blind. They, they either have some, some um, uh, handicap that has prevented them from working or um, they're old and they can't work. And these SSI benefits are administered to all 50 states and D.C. And, but uh, and we have territories of the United States um, and those the main the biggest of those territories, the most populous, I should say, is Puerto Rico. And uh, this case is about a fellow named Val Velo Madero, and he lived in New York. And uh, it was like West Side Story. He was a Puerto Rican living in New York. And then he, un unlike them, moved back to the island. And he kept receiving SSI benefits when he moved back to the island. That was a no-no. So the federal government came after him and said, you received all these benefits. you got to pay us back. Now, um, you can't get blood from a stone. I doubt very much Mr. Modelo was getting SSI benefits that they're, they're going to be able to get anything out of him. But the the question was, hey, Congress, how can you do this to these Puerto Ricans that they can't get SSI benefits and people in the states and D.C. can? And it, it should be noted that they're also um, that one of the territories, Northern Mariana Islands, can get SSI. But the, the, the case starts out by just Justice Kavanaugh says the United States includes five territories. Uh, can extra jeopardy bonus to those of you who can name them before I do. American Samoa, Guam, where the American day begins, Northern Mariana Islands and the U.S. Virgin Islands, and of course, Puerto Rico. And so uh, these are the territories. And in the old days, uh, I'm reading uh, John Marshall, Definer of a Nation. And uh, in, in, in the early days of the Republic, what the Congress could do in the territories was a huge deal. The Northwest Territories were sort of split off from Virginia and, and, and uh, some of the states uh, got the Northwest Territory. We had a huge act that we refer to in the law all the time nowadays about in, in religious cases, what you can do, what the government can do about religion. And in tons of cases, we, uh, we, we 
go back to those Northwest ordinance cases. Um, and you might have heard of a little case called Dred Scott, about whether sl- Congress could ban slavery in the territories, right? And uh, the answer famously from uh, Justice Taney and, and the Supreme Court was no, uh, which turned out to be a bad decision. Uh, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna put down a marker there. Uh, in any event, in this, so this decision is what does the territories clause of the United States mean to administrative programs, programs that are that are uh, created and administered by the federal government. And uh, the question presented is whether the equal protection component of the Fifth Amendment's due process clause requires Congress to make supplemental security income benefits available to residents of Puerto Rico to the same extent Congress makes those benefits available to residents of the states. And their answer is no. Um, And the territory clause of the Constitution states that Congress may quote, make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory based belonging to the United States. Now, so the states are not territories. They have their own sovereignty. So they can't make those rules there, but they can make it for territories. And obviously many places that are now states were once territories and Puerto Rico may, may be one of them someday. But the, the uh, case points out that most federal taxes are not pl- paid by Puerto Ricans in Puerto Rico. So if you are in Puerto Rico, you don't have to pay income tax and certain other federal taxes. Some you do, but, but you don't have to pay all of them. And so the court just went through it and said, ah, they're allowed to do this. It's a rational basis test. Sure, there's an equal protection uh, part of the due process, but, um, but we, we think that it's perfectly rational for Congress to treat islanders differently they treat them differently for taxes. They're, they're a different subset of people and they have a different governance and they have different histories and there's lots of reasonable reasons, right? So that is the majority opinion. It's pretty straightforward and somewhat boring. The interesting things are the dissents and the concurrences. And I find them, um, I find them uh, quite something. Um, and that is, uh, first, I'll, I'll go on with Justice Thomas, because he has a concurring. Uh, and Justice Thomas goes after Bowling v. Sharp. Now, Bowling v. Sharp, it was decided the same day as Brown versus Board of Ed. And it said not only could the states not uh, have segregated education in, in grammar schools, um, under, because of the 14th Amendment. But you know what? Under the Fifth Amendment, the due process cause, uh, the federal government can't do it either in D.C., right? So they sort of threw it in. It was a, it was a sloppy decision, uh, but it was considered morally necessary. And Thomas takes his whole concurrence to say, you know, I've been along in a lot of these cases where I've, where I've, uh, I've joined with the court in a, applying this equal protection rational basis business. Um, and, and I've done it, um, I've done it a number of times at he quotes some of them, but you know, I think I was wrong. I think that the citizenship clause is what does this, that they can't, the government can't do this, but we got the wrong reason. And Bowling v. Sharp is completely wrong, uh, because it is not, uh, it is not, uh, that, um, that bright doesn't have an equal protection part of it. The due process and equal protection are different things. And we were simply wrong uh, then. And so 
So he says, fourth, this is what he doesn't like. Bowling asserted that because the Constitution prohibits states from racial racially segregating public schools, quote, it would be unthinkable that the same constitution would impose a lesser duty on the federal government. And he says such moral judgments lie beyond the commission of the federal courts. Um, and then he says it's a debatable assertion. And so, but he does, still doesn't think it can be done because he says there's a citizenship clause. And he quotes Justice Harlan uh, in Plessy about what the, what the citizenship clause did. Uh, and what the Civil Rights Act of 1866 did, which which repudiated Dred Scott. And he says, these are firm foundations for this, but not what you guys are using. So he goes on for a long time. It's an interesting uh, case. And he's, he whacks at the slaughterhouse cases again. We always like that. Um, and so it, it's a very good decision. It's a very long decision. And he's sort of uh, laying out a scheme whereby there could be originalism, but it doesn't let the Congress go around segregating things, which, you know, that's that's a good thing. So, but then you have Sotomayor. Uh, I'm going to skip over Gorsuch, but Sotomayor, who I, I think uh, her background is is uh, Puerto Rican from her mother, but um, she says, wait a minute, these benefits are federal benefits they, there's no rational basis. She does use a rational basis test, but she says there's no reason to treat poor people um, who, who, who are in Puerto Rico differently from any other U.S. citizen. And she points out they're U.S. citizens, which they all are. Everyone in the territories is. Um, and you can't treat them differently. And I don't care what, the, what, what those cases uh, uh, Kavanaugh keeps citing is. And her, her uh, decision and her dissent um, is very, uh, is very, uh, well, I'll call it Warren court. Basically she starts with the premise that federal benefits are absolutely necessary, uh, for everybody and that the courts can direct them and whether or not, uh, welfare benefits or certain benefits are constitutionally required back in the seventies, uh, there was a case and it was just the court by five to four rejected it, but it was just five to four. There is a strain of constitutionalism uh, of, of positive rights um, sometimes. And I think that Sotomayor is there. And so she goes on with SSI and, and how it, how bad it is. And it is, does seem pretty bad. This guy's very poor. He's living in New York, New York, one of the most expensive places to live in the United States, New York city. And uh, he goes to Puerto Rico. He's living on a pittance of SSI, and he goes to Puerto Rico, and and then they cut off his benefits when he's there, uh, and he and he can't and he has nothing. He has no income then. Um, and then they come after him to take it all back because he was down there. So um, it's pretty it, it's pretty grim, and uh, it, and what happened to him is a horrible thing. There's no question, but the plaintiffs. I mean, the government does point out that there is, it's not like there's not a benefit program. There is the old benefit program pre-SSI that Puerto Ricans can avail themselves of. Sotomayor says, wait a minute, if it was SSI, what you need to pass that test, there's there'd be like 300,000 Puerto Ricans could avail themselves and only 34 can under the old program. So um, she then, she agrees on the, standard, the equal protection standard that Kavanaugh uses through the due process uh, clause. They, they, don't, they don't really address Justice Thomas at all or Justice Gorsuch. 
So I think that the both, both Thomas and Sotomayor are laying down a marker for later cases. And I think it's interesting that it came up in the administration. Welcome back to Administrative Static. We have a special uh, surprise for you uh, today. We are joined by the founder of the New Civil Liberties Alliance, Professor Philip Hamburger from Columbia University Law School. Philip, welcome to Administrative Static. It's great to be here, uh, finally to be on the show. It's very exciting. Thank you, Mark. Yes, we've been uh, we've been wanting to have you on the show for uh, for many months, and it worked out with uh, with everyone's schedule today. And what I thought that we might do is ask you some questions about your most recently published book, Purchasing a Submission, which has been uh, something that the attorneys here at, uh, at NCLA have been getting better acquainted with. And we have started to bring some cases relevant to some of the legal points you make in purchasing a submission. So it, uh, maybe you can tell our audience. So you talk a lot about off-road driving and how uh, there are efforts by the federal government uh, and other governments to, to to regulate people's behavior outside of the ways that the Constitution says that they can can do that. Can you give some examples of what you're talking about in in purchasing submission? Sure. Uh, and as just a preliminary point, uh, the off-road driving is pretty serious here. The Constitution lays out two modes of governance. Uh, there's one mode of lawmaking in Congress where we elect the folks who make the laws. And there's one mode of judgment or adjudication. When you violate the law, you're held to account in the courts. You get a judge, a real judge, uh, and jury. Um, And over the past century or so, another mode of governance has developed outside this constitutional set of avenues, uh, namely administrative power, in which agencies issue edicts or rules and then have their own little fake judges, uh, the mock judges called administrative law judges, and no jury, of course. But there's something that may be even worse. The agencies uh, especially use this alternative method. Uh, They govern us not through rules that are sort of mimic statutes, uh, but through conditions. They give us money or some privilege and they say, ah, but it's on a condition that you don't do this or you do that. And it becomes an alternative mode of controlling us without even a fake statute. Um, Yeah, so let me give you some examples. You've probably never heard of chemical castration. Probably don't want to hear about it. I was going to say, I'm not sure I want to ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, but let me, let me, there, when you, if you ever end up in prison um, and you are there because you're a sex offender, which I trust will not be the case of any of the folks listening to this, you can be offered parole on the condition that you subject yourself to chemical castration, namely that you take hormones um, that reduce testosterone. But of course, some states, such as California, like to go a little further. They add that offenders can avoid the injections upon parole if they voluntarily submit to permanent surgical castration. So here's a program that offers you release from jail, a pretty strong incentive, as long as you uh, remove your private parts. 
that seems rather severe to me. And there's no statute that sets this out. This is something that the penal system has come up with on its own. It's a so mode of control by contract, contract instead of law. Another fun, more amusing example is comes from 1961. Jimi Hendrix was caught twice uh, riding in a stolen car, and a local prosecutor told him he could stay out of prison as long as he joined the army. Um, he chose to enlist rather than go to prison and ended up in the 101st Airborne. As you can imagine, that was not a good mix. And fortunately for him and the army, uh, he was soon discharged. Um, the rest may be rock and roll history, but for us, what's interesting is that prosecutors and judges control us not merely by law, but by offering conditions. And this is a mode of control that has no basis in the Constitution. And is that the main objection, that there's no basis in the Constitution for it, that, that this is uh, a, and it's sort of an invented mode of, of controlling people? That That is, in a sense, the, the formal objection. It's a, but it, it, it's pretty serious. It's dangerous because um, the Constitution provides that we should be regulated through enactment rules that we all know about that are public, and that are publicly debated in a public assembly, namely Congress, which we elect. And a lot of restraints, therefore, on what's done in this regulation. Administrative regulation goes through the quiet mode of, through unelected bureaucrats. And this goes even worse because at least the bureaucrats issue rules. So you can read the Federal Register and you usually find the rule that's regulating you, even if it was adopted by unelected individuals. So you can change your conduct in advance to avoid that's the, right. the rules. Yeah, it does, there's at least, I wouldn't say it's fair, but it's, it's not as unfair as conditions, whereby uh, they say, look, would they dangle a carrot in front of you, but you have to conform in one way or another um, to regulations that were never public public debated. Um, and because they're not public debated and enacted in rules, you can't have political pushback against it. In fact, they use this method to buy off the, some of the objectors, and then the rest cannot form a political coalition against the regulation. Can I give a real example? Absolutely. Serious one? Um, the, the best known example these days, I suppose, would be Title IX. Title IX um, is a civil rights provision, but unlike many civil rights provisions, it doesn't say thou shalt not discriminate on the basis of sex in education. It says we give money to education on the condition that you not discriminate on the basis of sex. And you might think, well, what's the difference? Any better to rule with a carrot than with a stick? But you know, does Congress have any authority to legislate on education? And the traditional answer was no. Right, the Constitution clearly did not give a power over education, and so this was a way meaning of... that it's left to state and local governments. That's right, that's right, and so one has diverse regulations that are closer to the people. Here, Congress is seizing that power to regulate education and is getting around possible constitutional objections by saying, "Oh, it's just a limit on what we're funding." And of course, if it's just a limit on what you're funding, then also they can uh, put all sorts of additional conditions through interpretations on this that are even more surreptitious than interpretations of administrative rules. And that's why we have the Dear Colleague letters. The Dear Colleague letter essentially says, oh, we're going to ask you um, to suppress sexual speech and political sexual speech and subject students to hearings that are without any due process that in fact are modeled on inquisition and, and you have to do away with any proceeding that has uh, more than a preponderance of the evidence as the right. standard. If it's if it's a reasonable doubt right. Or, right. or or something like that, right. that's you have to do away Clear with it. Clear and convincing. Clear and convincing right. even, yeah. And if you don't conform, 
you lose your money. Um, and of course, taking away your money, you might say, oh, that's their right to do because they have the right, they have the right to fund this. We could dispute that, but let's leave it aside for the moment. Um, this is actually much more severe than even criminal proceedings against universities because then they'd be able to defend themselves in a court with a jury and with a, a strong burden of proof from the government. Here, the government can just wipe out the universities with the, without even a stroke of the pen. They just don't have to send more money. Um, so it's a very powerful instrument of regulation that's completely unlawful. Well, we've seen this with uh, uh, with some of the cases at NCLA, our Title IX cases for sure. We've also had uh, cases involving the uh, the PPP where, John, you had a you had a client, uh, Move Corp, where the CEO of the company had an unadjudicated DUI charge uh, right. against him. And because of COVID, he couldn't get adjudicated. Courts were closed. He said, <laughs> I want to go in. And the state's court says, can't come in. We're not doing any hearings on these on these small offenses, you know. <laughs> and so he couldn't get an adjudication right. in a real court. And, he, then... and, and the Small Business Administration uh, was charged with administering this benefits program from Congress. And they said, well, we, this isn't in the statute. The Small Business Administration just decided if you have an unadjudicated uh, offense that you can't qualify for one of the PPP loans. And so here there was a guy who had a perfectly viable business, but he couldn't get a PPP loan because he had an unadjudicated uh, DUI. SBA made that up. And I think what's significant about this is when we sued and we ultimately prevailed and were able to get PPP money for him, but the court never ruled in his favor. It, it, money was set aside for him. He ultimately got the loan, but they kept changing the rule in the midst of, and I'm using the word rule. That's loosely. They changed their policy in the face of the litigation, but they weren't made to change their policy. And then as soon as they changed their policy, court said, Oh, it's moot. Yeah. (laughs) Got your money. They changed the policy now. So, so there's this, this sense of lawmaking that is, that is, uh, where the agencies can change it more quickly than they could if you're right. talking about a statute or or a regulation. Right. I, I have a question about the chemical castration case because I, I think they're different than uh, Hendricks, who who was dishon- who was honorably discharged. I will I will point out to everyone, he was not drummed out. It was an honorable discharge for Jimmy. Well, of course, he wasn't <laughs> drummed out. He was a guitarist. <laughs> so in any event. But um, the chemical castration, if it, if the government wanted to put that in, I think you'd have. Uh, Eighth Amendment violation, oh, right? Yes. Absolutely. And and those Eighth Amendment violations would be those Eighth Amendment violations would be um, prevented. But if you agree to it, you're suddenly allowed. Right. It's well. This is actually one of the strange arguments uh, made by libertarians, liberals across the political spectrum in defense of these conditions. It said, "Well, you consented to it. It's okay." Um, this is really very odd. Uh, the Constitution isn't a contract. Um, and uh, Frank Easterbrook, I know, a uh, wonderful guy, um, has argued that a constitutional right is even more valuable if you can trade it, if you can sell it. But actually, the Constitution is a law enacted by the public. It limits government. Uh, and that's not something you can contract away. There was a theory of the Constitution in the 19th century propounded by uh, Southerners that the Constitution was merely a compact. But even they did not argue that you could sort of contract away your rights. So there's something really odd about the current jurisprudence on this. That's right. How can you contract away a constitutional right? It doesn't make sense. Anything else about these conditions on spending that, that our audience ought to be wary of? Well, uh, I think one can div- I think one can divide the 
uh, the objectionable conditions, and of course, many are unobjectionable. If the government buys an airplane, um, it should be able to make it a condition that it flies. Um, but the objectionable conditions fall, I think, into two categories. Um, there are those which are used as substitutes for regulation, and there are those which are used to deprive us of our rights. And Title IX is a good example precisely because it does both. It's using a condition, basically contract, to control us as a substitute for enacted laws, and it's depriving us of our rights of speech and due process. So there's a lot to worry about here, and my hope is that this book will be read by the judges and they'll begin to get back on track. The book is Purchasing Submission. The author is Philip Hamburger, founder of the New Civil Liberties Alliance and chairman of the board. We are happy to have him with us today. Hope you go out and and, uh, grab yourself a copy of this book and learn more about uh, conditions on spending. Thanks for listening to the